Welcome, everybody, to the ATS podcast, Early Career and Respiratory Research. Uh, in the past 20 years, human genetics as a field of research has boomed and given us novel insights into the nature of human disease. Despite the explosion of, of this field, uh, this field is technically and analytically challenging, but at the same time is rapidly changing and evolving. This leaves many of us, including myself, uh, sometimes to wonder, how does one get into research or a career in human, human genetics? So today we are fortunate to have a panel of human genetic, genomic researchers who have successfully navigated through many challenges of reaching a full-time research career in respiratory genomics. Great, and our panel today includes Dr. Michael Cho, who is a pulmonary and critical care physician at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and an associate professor of medicine at the Harvard Medical School. He investigates risk factors in the heterogeneity of COPD. We also have Dr. Dara Torgerson, who is an associate professor in the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at UCSF, uh, whose research interests are in integrative genomic and metabolomic studies of complex diseases, including asthma and respiratory outcomes in preterm infants. We have Dr. Victor Ortega, a pulmonary and critical care physician at Wake Forest Baptist Health and an associate professor at the Wake Forest School of Medicine. His research interests have included the effects of rare genetic variants and genetic ancestry on disease severity and the response to commonly used drugs for asthma and COPD. Myself and Andrew Bishop will be moderating today's podcast on careers and respiratory genomics research. My name is Vikram Tejwani, and I'm a pulmonary and critical care fellow at Johns Hopkins University. My research interests are immunologic mechanisms, predominantly focused on macrophages and PBMCs, and clinical outcomes in asthma and COPD. And I am an assistant professor in the Department of Internal Medicine, a section on molecular medicine at Wake Forest School of Medicine. Uh, my research interests have focused primarily on metabolomics and proteomics investigation of the airways but recently have been also included genomic studies. So today our podcast will focus on questions related to the journey of our panelists' careers have taken in respiratory genomics. And hopefully by the end of the podcast, our listeners will have a good idea of the necessary steps they can take to start to establish themselves in the field. We'll start by asking a few questions. So the first one, when did you first think about genetics and genomics? When did it all begin for you? Yeah, so for me, it was really a choice of mentor first that um, when I was a pulmonary and critical care fellow, I actually talked to as many people as I could. And I really had an affinity for people that I met who were at the uh, Channing Lab, now the Channing Division of Network Medicine. I knew I didn't want to do physics science bench research. I wanted to work on things that used quantitative skills and data analyst analysis. And it happened that that lab uh, did a fair amount of genetics. And so that's really sort of how I fell into it. I've, I've told other people this, but when I, was a, when I was in medical school, I actually didn't like my genetics course at all. It was like one of my least favorite medical school classes. So it's kind of funny that I end up now doing research in genetics. But um, it was that, it was sort of mentor, wanting to do quantitative research. And yeah, that it all happened from there. Well, that's interesting. Uh, so this is Jared Torgerson. I, I also had experienced a genetics course that I wasn't particularly fond of. But you know, prior to that, I would actually say that my high school biology class 
where there was, you know, we had a, a genetics unit and I was just amazed by what we were learning and what this was all about. Um, but then I really kind of, you know, I had an interest at that point, but then I went into uh, biology and ecology and was a field biologist and ecologist. And, you know, I really wanted to get out into the forest and nature and, came back to genetics when I really realized during my master's degree that it was actually a, a much more practical way to go out and to use genetics as a tool to really track ecological systems. So where you can get at the history of a system uh, and also looking at both the present and the past of what, what is going on. Um, and of course, so my background really was in, in genetics and looking at flies um, and then, you know, making the transition into, into human genetics. So coming from, from the, the biological background. Yeah, it's, it's Victor. Yeah, you know, for me, it was first about getting into, in, in, into research first, being raised in a household with a, with a private practice physician, you know, and I always just, you know, thought the, the, the physician took care of patients and that was it. It, was, it wasn't until I actually I went through medical school and really didn't realize that a lot of physicians did research. And then, you know, I got to the Cleveland Clinic and it wasn't even until my last year in the Cleveland Clinic that I got, that I, that I, that I had the opportunity to run into Mark Aronica, who's there. And, and, and I, he, you know, we, we got along really well. It's kind of like what, you know, I think Mike had mentioned about just the mentor and I kind of, kind of wrote me into a, a nice research project in Cleveland in, in mice. And then I was then hooked and it was the, really the appeal of, um, of being able to really go deep into the origin story or these questions of where things come from, you know, you know, you just kind of want to know, you know, and you want to, and you want to just keep digging and digging and learning and that curiosity and that creativity and that imagination that underlies research has really always been appealing to me. And then I, then I went to, um, you know, apply for my fellowship and then trained to be a pulmonary critical care doc. And, and I was I interviewed at a few places and I went to Wake Forest and I ran into this just really interesting pair of researchers, you know, Gene Bleeker and Deb Myers. And, and it's about 50, oh, it's just over 15 years ago. I can't believe it's been over 15 years at this point, but, um, but my goodness, you know, I met with them and their enthusiasm. And then as I went on to fellowship, you know, their enthusiasm in terms of, you know, how genomic science can, can, can really provide just really, you know, incredible, you know, origin stories. Or you can understand where things come from, you know, and it's translational, you know, the, the, it's, I think, you know, how it comes in terms of human genomics and, and the research that helps us understand the, you know, where things come from in terms of the genetics of, of, of airways diseases. Just having, you know, been surrounded by these people who are doing this fantastic work um, with, such, with such enthusiasm and, and creativity, really um, piqued my interest in this field and I just got hooked and and I just never you know got away from it here I here here we are you know here I am that's a good leeway into our our next uh, topic which is mentors uh, and so we've already talked about a few mentors but specifically and this doesn't have to be uh, a traditional scientific uh, mentor but what people were you know critical into to your career choices, your goals, and, and now your trajectory? 
Sure. You know, this is a hard question because I think that there, you know, we're surrounded by so many people that influence us. And so you can think about it in terms of having mentors that inspire you about the questions or that, you know, enable you to, to sort of break what you're doing and move into something new. I would think that, you know, I, I can come back to thinking about my postdoc advisor, one of my postdoc advisors, Dan Nikolai, who had a group of people in his lab. And I remember at one point sitting and looking around and saying, wait a minute, none of us are statisticians. And thinking, wait, we have a physicist, we have a, a molecular biologist, I'm a, a, a degree in zoology. And, you know, at one point kind of pointing this out, I say, well, you know, none of us are actually statisticians. And he said, well, what are you talking about? You're all statisticians. <laughs> and it was kind of this moment where I was like, oh, right. You don't have to have a formal degree in a topic to really belong to that group. And so, you know, kind of from that point forward, it kind of made me feel that, okay, I do belong here, even though I'm, you know, traditionally a field ecologist and, um, you know, I hadn't been sort of belonging to the human pulmonary clinical area or the statisticians area, it was like, well, okay, I didn't have to have a club card to belong. You know, it's really based on your interests and your incentive. And, um, you know, we should all be proud of our diverse backgrounds and being, being able to belong in a field because that's what makes it stronger. And having people from a lot of different backgrounds is so important. Um, and making people feel like they do belong in a field is, is really important. Yeah, I mean, I can, you know, talk about, you know, you know, the mentors around my life. Yeah, it's like, it's like Dara says, I mean, you are, you become the product of, of those people that surround you during the course of your career. And, you know, and, and as the years build on, you take on the good things and sometimes the bad things, but you mostly take on the good things, the things that impress you the most. Um, you know, and I'll use the, the example of, of the mentors that I've worked with the most over the past um, 15 years, and that's Gene Bleeker and Deb Myers. I mean, they're an interesting duo. I mean, Gene is, and, and, and you know, they, they complement each other and the kind of mentors that, that really helped formulate my way of thinking in different ways. You know, Gene being the master clinician and clinical trialist, very focused on, you know, the phenotype or the patient characteristics and the, qual the, best, the best genetic studies are done with the best phenotyping. And then Deb Myers, you know, being a pure, a PhD geneticist and really, you know, into the, 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 the genetic epidemiology and molecular genetics and, you know, and, and all the principles, you know, that, that come with population genetics. And, 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 you know, I think with their partnership and in the way they mentored me, you know, you know, I, I think the things that, 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 that I've learned is the value of a team. And I, you know, I learned the partnerships between scientists and clinicians are really important you know, and critical to doing these kinds of, of, of studies because you really, in, in genomics, I mean, you really are, you know, to, un, to best understand the genetic architecture of a disease, you really have to have strong multidisciplinary teams that are able to collect the best phenotypes and do the best science. Yeah. I mean, you know, also I think, you know, you know, having mentors like that though, you know, they kind of travel the world and, you know, and you see them maybe, you know, you see them once in a while if you're lucky. Um, so you have other mentors that do come to mind that are more the people that were more my everyday. And, you know, I think Greg Hawkins is an example of that and really was somebody who, you know, having been there all the time was always very happy, always supportive, 
and really got me interested in, in the path of a, a, of a PhD scientist and really was one of the reasons why I went to go get a PhD a few years ago, you know, and then Wendy Moore, who's, who's somebody who recruits a lot here at Wake Forest and is a master clinical trialist as well. So, yeah, I think, you know, the, all the mentors that I've had through the years have really just shown me the value of, of the multidisciplinary teams and especially, which is, this is so important these days when we're trying to do this, this work in genomics. I would echo what a lot of Vic and uh, Dara say about multidisciplinary teams. If to remember that the field is relatively new. So there are some people that didn't start out in genetics and genomics um, who ended up being very successful in this field. And to this day, right, we have um, people with a background in physics or people with an MD without any other training who can, who can come into this field. Um, and I think that's been really important. I guess, from my standpoint, my mentor, my main mentor has been Ed Silverman, and he's been a wonderful mentor. And he actually, interesting that you said that there, because I think that he actually started out as a biologist interested in field research and thought he was going to study trees and then move back to humans. And when I joined the division, Scott Weiss was the head and did, started out as an epidemiologist, not a geneticist, really learned a lot. I think this, these were in his words that he learned a lot from Ed. And then part of the reason I got connected to Scott was that his brother, Woody, was the chief of pulmonary at uh, Beth Israel when I was a resident. And when I was there, I met Benji Raby, Juan Celadon, Matt Huntinghockey was in my fellowship class. Uh, Sunia Sharma was my co-fellow. And this is another thing I want to bring up is that in addition to the mentors, it was like, it was my colleagues uh, like Sunita. And also, I think some of the things that keep me in this are the people who are postdocs and fellows that I meet. And I, I learn, you know, more from them probably than they learn from me at this point. And uh, the last thing I'll say is that we have a lot of inspiring people in genetics. I mean, Francis Collins does work in genetics. Eric Lander does work in genetics. And so some of the most inspiring people in science today are actually involved in human genetics. Um, and that I think just goes to how amazing, exciting the field is. Yeah, I think that's all really informative as far as uh all of your paths to this career. And I, I think a certain vein was, or a recurrent theme, I should say, was meeting people that kind of introduce you to the field. And I, I think that's in part related to the institution. I, I think to build on that, I'm just curious what the role or how important the actual environment or institutional environment is to um, helping and develop a career in genetics and genomics. Yeah, I think that, you know, the, the, your environment is, is huge because we do really rely on feedback from people. So certainly, you know, I, not to say that there's one right or wrong institution, but certainly, you know, the, the people around you can either support you or crush you. And, you know, I've been fortunate to have everybody being very, very supportive, um, you know, even in, in a practical sense. So, there are, you know, it can be a little bit intimidating to just sort of jump in and, and see, you know, all of the tools that are available. And so knowing where to start. So you can, you know, you can, if you're working alone and you're looking at all that is out there and because the field has exploded so much, it can be very overwhelming. And so having, you know, folks around you that can guide you to even your institution specific resources or uh, web-based platforms or where to start, where to find your command line, what is even just 
how, how is genomics data handled and stored and privacies and ethical and in clinical considerations. So that can be huge, but it, it, it doesn't have to be a, a detriment, you know, where you can, you, there's so much information out there that, you know, anybody can be a genomic scientist, um, even kids, that there are many ways and it's really important to develop the questions. Um, but I will say in genomics, there's often, you know, it, you can spend three days, you know, if you come across a problem, you can spend three days or longer getting quite frustrated or if there are, you know, if there's a community around you that's supportive, you can, you know, kind of lean over and say, hey, wait a minute, what's going on here? I don't understand this. And they can tell you in one sentence, <laughs> oh, yes, I remember that. And I came across that and they can sort of push you along in that way. And you've now saved a lot of frustrations. Um, so I think that it is important, but it's not, you know, it's, it's our institution is something that we can make of it our, ourselves. You know, I think at the early, you know, there's several aspects of institutional development, I think that are important. And I think at the very first is when you're younger, when you're starting out, I think it is important to have people around you that are supportive. And also, I mean, but people that, you know, if you want to do genomics, that, that have some genomic experience to really help you steer you in the right direction and, and you know, and, and are supportive of the research that you want to do in, in, in genomics. You know, I think that's really important, you know, for somebody who wants to get in the field. And there's so many subtleties and it's harder if you're in an environment where you really don't have people around you have experience in the genomic scientists starting out. I think if you advance in your career, you know, you, and, and you've gained more independence than that, that's probably, you could do it. I think as a physician who does research, the institutional environment also has a different dimension to it. And I think the amount that they're dead, you know, how, how, um, dedicated they are to protecting your time to allow you to do the research you need to do. And this is particularly important early on. And I think, you know, having been at Wake Forest, one of the things that's been remarkable, and I think it was critical to allowing me to develop my career was that, you know, I finished my, I mean, I, I ever since I finished my fellowship in 2010, I've been 75% protected. And, and, you know, obviously I've had to earn that protection with getting K awards, but the institution has done a fantastic job. I mean, remember, you're a clinician and you can do a lot of clinical work and that's appealing for institutions because that helps bring in revenue. But a supportive institution looks beyond that and allows you, you know, and protects your time. And there are institutions that do that. And, you know, I think that that kind of, you know, support from the institutional level is really important. I think to, to develop, there are people who've had successful careers in genomics without much time protection, but it's, it's a very tough, intense road. There's a very steep learning curve in the genomic sciences. So just making sure that, you know, that, that your environment, you know, you, that your institution provides some support is really important. I also think that it's important in terms of computational abilities and, and having a, a staff around you who, who are analysts or, you know, and folks who can do data analysis, but, um, you know, I think the need to have these huge clusters, I mean, you know, I think co cloud computing has, has really helped us tremendously to really provide, like Dara's mentioning, access to the power that it takes to do, the computational power that it takes to do genomic studies. And, and I think that the, that particular concept in terms of the institu institutional environment, in terms of having the, the computing power resources is going to take on a, a different face as the years go on and things are more, you know, as data storage, you know, compute, you know, th those kind of infrastructure moves to cloud-based solutions. Yeah, I, I would echo what Vic says is that I think that, I think the broader question of how the institution supports you 
as a young investigator is incredibly important. And I think obviously you can get taken up with a lot of clinical time or um, for non, non-clinical people, you can end up doing a lot of teaching time and administration and not have a chance to do your research. And so being protected in general is really important. And I would also I think sort of echo some of the stuff that Tara said about having colleagues and people around you and having this environment where you can bounce questions off each other, where you can get immediate answers where you are not necessarily struggling for three days, although I know people obviously who do that and don't don't ask. Um, it's just the style that they work in. So all of those things are, are really important and I feel extraordinarily lucky. I think that when I came into this field, I was really very undifferentiated and needed a lot, a lot of help. And so I think I was lucky to land in a place where I had a big group and a lot of co-fellows who were doing some of the same things that I did. I think if you are not in an environment where there are a lot of people like you or you're doing your own thing, you know, the sort of passion um, and curiosity can make up for that in, in some way. I also think in our field, we have a couple advantages. One is that a lot of the techniques that we apply in human genetics and genomics are not specific to lung. And so even if you're specific division, even if you're in the pulmonary division and you don't have anyone who's doing exactly the thing that you want to do, you can often find somebody who does that in another field or, I mean, in another group. And the other thing is that uh, Darius made an allusion to command line. We do, a lot, we do a lot of dry lab stuff. We're sitting at the computer. And so you don't need somebody to come over and go through a protocol with you. You can actually just have somebody send you some code. And so I think there's an advantage in terms of um, your, your environment, your institutional environment may actually go beyond just your, your own lab and it actually may go beyond your actual institute. If you can get enough collaborators and people helping you from outside, you can often get a lot done. Yeah, and no, I think um, that's one aspect of the institutional environment that I think is important is, is the collaborative spirit and people, you know, and I think that, you know, I think, I think the three of us have been blessed with that. I mean, you really have to be, you can't be in your own silo in, in genomics. You can't do, especially now that we're going into more multiomics, you really can't afford to be in a silo and collaboration is important. And I know at least at, at Wake Forest, I know, and I know it's the same in UCSF and, and, and at Harvard, but the, the, um, the collaborations that are formed and how people openly work with each other to try to solve solutions. Is, you know, there has to, there is some competitiveness that is inherent into what we do but we try to look beyond that to work together with a common goal to answer these very important questions using omics. So I think that's really important. And the other thing is in some institutions is to focus on the exchange of information across institutions. And I think Wake Forest does this well. And I know both of the other speakers have institutions that do that well, where there's regular seminars, where people come together uh, across different disciplines. And these are regular and people get, there's a lot of crosstalk and exchange. And I think that that's a, that's a very important aspect of the institutional environment. And sometimes we overlook that when we're writing the environment parts of our grants. Um, but I think it's really important to have a nice list of all the places you can go if you wanted to meet somebody who was doing, you know, you know, omics work, more proteomics work, or or more more pure statistical genetics. So, so I think certainly a theme of both the institution itself, the environment there, and the mentors at that institution being pretty critical and as far as introducing you to this career initially, and then also developing it. Um, you all touched on it a little bit, and I, I do think for those listening that maybe at their home institution don't necessarily have access to all those resources directly, 
maybe providing a little bit of guidance on ways to uh, circumvent that maybe with passion, Dr. Cho, as you alluded to, or, or just curiosity, and then also potentially examples of people that you all know or their story that have, have done this, where maybe their home institution didn't have all of that, but through outside collaborations, we're still able to achieve uh, everything you all described. I think that um, genetics and genomics, I think, has been a sort of leader in terms of making sure that data sets are accessible. It's now part of the standard grant language that we have to have. And it's, it's progressed to the point where in top med, the embargo is actually only about six months, meaning that the time from which we as the investigative group that had the samples send them over, you know, uh, got the grants to, to funnel the sequencing, we have that data by ourselves for about six months. And then after that, it gets released to the general public. And so any investigator can, for example, go to go and download essentially the top, the whole genome sequencing data sets that we're using right now in our analysis. So I, I think the NIH has really pushed that and I think EBI and Europe as well. And so it's no longer really just a question of access. And then, then in terms of compute, most institutions will have sufficient computational resources. And I think as Vic pointed out, Another big push is to get things on the cloud. So um, there's the uh, NHLBI Biodata Catalyst Initiative, which is has all of, uh, for example, TopNet up on the cloud and encouraging people to use that. Um, Bro does have a platform called Terra. There's another uh, Seven Bridges. So there's all kinds of, I think, platforms um, that people can use. Then it just comes to training. And, you know, I, I can think of a couple specific examples that I think there was... Um, there was somebody who you know, joined the lab and is, had no programming experience and his undergraduate degree was in chemistry, but he ended up being one of our sort of most talented analysts. And then another person who had no background and no training in, in genetics and in fact never ended up taking the courses that we usually take, but just sort of self-taught. Um, and he, his skill that he brought was that um, he was actually... Uh, he, he was actually really good at command line. And from there, all the programming came. And then we've had other people. Uh, one of the things that I think has been interesting to me is that we've had people come from many different institutions and spend six months or a year as, as a sabbatical and just sit with us and sort of get the sort of environment that they need. I'm wondering what it's like now that we're all so used to re working remotely and perhaps the same thing can happen remotely, like the same, you know, I'm struggling with something, I need to just chat with somebody or walk down the hall instead, it's just a text or a Slack message. But I do think that there are people who have succeeded who have not had necessarily the background that you think and do not necessarily have access to the vast resources because again, the, the resources are now, now shared with everybody. Yeah, no, I've, 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 ha I've had the, the privilege of of working with a you know with, with hardworking people and one in particular that I know of who didn't have any was a physician in a really not in a great institution didn't really have much protected time to do any research whatsoever he was just doing clinical work and and I think he came he came to visit Wake Forest and and you know and I think that visit that initial splash or that initial visit needs to be around a, in a supportive environment so that you get well oriented. And then that individual went back to his institution and and, and really just kind of ran with it. We, you know, we're you know, it, it was still a good, well-connected world about four or five years ago too. And with you know, and I think you know, this individual eventually got a K award, got a PhD, 
was able to make the able to to get his own protected time and get a PhD and get a KOA and recently submitted his first R01 application, but was pretty much doing 100% clinical work. Um, it was pretty remarkable. Um, I think you know I, I you know I think there's a lot of this that's an unknown right now in terms of of what you can do. Um, I think the institute in terms of what you can do in terms of genomics and the compute and the data storage with clouds. And then even the issue of having people around you with Zoom and the way we're, we've become even more connected now. And as a, as a person, as somebody who, like, who convenes top med, a top med working group, you know, we're getting more people from the outside who are interested in looking at these data sets who are reaching out to, you know, with Zoom to people in, these, in the different cohorts or different larger institutions to, to do genomics work. And they're reaching out to like top med and NHLBI and things like that to, Top Med, which is a part of NHLBI, a program in there to, to, to do this work, you know, I, yeah, you know, I really wonder what it's going to look like moving forward. I think, you know, and I think a lot of us as, as, as scientists who work on big data, I think we all believe that the, the success of our field depends on the ability to share data and to really get all the minds together to really work on these large data sets. And, um, that is the ideal. Um, yeah, I, I do think you, you, you have to have an institutional environment. There has to be some basic requirements for that. You just can't do it out of anywhere. But I'm really excited to see how this field develops with them. Um, and I've even, you know, with Biodata Catalyst, I've just been pleasantly surprised, you know, you know, in terms of how user-friendly that is, in terms of just how out of the box the usability and the, the powerful things you can do which before you really had to have very strong programming background to do a lot of these things, just how seamless it is in these browser-based, very visual, press this button, put these things together kind of thing. I'm not, definitely don't want to oversimplify the complexity of it. And that's why I think you do have to have some basic things around you to support you. And I would also encourage, you know, folks who are listening, I mean, definitely, if you're thinking about, you know, doing Biodata Catalyst or getting in the cloud and accessing these resources to definitely reach out to, you know, folks like Dara, Michael Cho, myself, um, who worked in some of these cohorts, just to reach out, you know, I think there's a lot of benefit in terms of talking to folks who come, who've been part of the, where the data comes from. I think that there's, you know, there's been a lot of great people working on increasing accessibility to bioinformatics and data, you know, coming from working in fly genomics there, you know, it was less of a concern for data access because we didn't really worry about identifying individual flies in a data set. And so there was a lot, you know, picking up in the, uh, some of the tools and, and learning from that area actually was quite valuable. And we think of them as a model system, a model system for doing human genomics. And so, you know, looking cross-disciplinary and, and thinking about some of the other resources that you might have from other fields is also important. You know, I, I would say that I had very strong um, philosophical PhD advisor. Um, so in Canada, Rama Singh was my PhD advisor, a fly geneticist. I, I always ended up in fly labs studying humans. And, you know, flies and humans have a lot of similarities. And, you know, there, you know, it, it was really more, the, the more difficult thing was thinking about the questions and then um, trying to, you know, if you can think about an important question and you're passionate about it, you will find the data, you will find the resources that you need. Um, just going in and say, oh, I'm going to do a genomics analysis is, is fine. 
but it's also really, you know, we can kind of stray away and say, oh, we need to have big data. We need to have big tools. We need to have big clusters, but we don't really need to nowadays. Um, so if we think about even just, you know, the UCSC genome browser, you know, you don't need to know a command line in order to do intersections and table browsers. And there's some really exceptional tools out there for both accessing data, as well as doing large scale genomics um, on the cloud, on their servers, where it's really about the, the ideas and finding your passion to do it because the tools are there. And then ultimately you might find that you get you get to the point where there are questions that you're asking that there is no tool for. And then you can start to form collaborations and find, you know, build that tool. And next thing you know it, you're a full on computational biologist developing statistical packages for people. So it's really about finding your passions and then the data will, you, you will find great people to work with and it doesn't matter where you are um, or what you have. You know, now you have, if you have even an iPad, you can do some pretty incredible genomics analyses. And that's such a wonderful thing. I would actually just echo what Vera is saying is that having worked with people who can ask good questions and don't necessarily have as good data analytic skills and people who have really good analytic skills and can't ask the questions, it's much, I found it much better or much more tractable long-term when people can ask the questions because then they will find a way you know, I, I think if you're really just good at data analysis, but you can't ask the you can't ask the questions, I think that's that's actually much harder. And the tools are definitely getting better. Yeah, I know. I think um, it's the questions that motivate us. I mean, it's one thing to be dedicated and go to work every day and do what you do, and it's a lot of work, and we all work hard. But it's the motivation. I think the question that drives you is what motivates you. You can be very dedicated, and and some days you're motivated more than others. But I think it's the big questions in, you know, in my life, you know, I think a lot of some of us, I know, I know a lot, all of us in this group have done healthcare disparities research and, and, you know, and I think at least in, in our lab, for sure, those are the, we've, those are major questions in terms of pharmacogenetics and disease severity genetics that really motivate us as well um, to hit those questions. And I think, you know, to, to, to answer those questions with the tools that are available to us. I definitely want to echo what Dara said and Mike says, that's just a really critical and important part of, of why we, you know, why we always come to work every day with a smile on our face and, and we, we, we're all doing great things for it. Yeah, I think those are all really valuable insights. Shifting gears a little bit, I think as, as someone junior myself and, and certainly for other people that are, are listening, there's a lot of conversation around five-year plans. I think mostly around like marching out different manuscripts, different grant proposals and things like that. How important do you all think that is uh, both generally and, and particularly in the context of a career in genetics and genomics? I guess I'm gonna start off with say, you know, I do hear it's very important and I have tried to put together five-year plans and I, I'm gonna to have to say that none of them have ever worked out for me. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, life happens and things happen and, you know, maybe I set some goals and wrote them down, but, you know, I think especially in genomics, it's like you have this, this plan and then there's something there and you, and you just get your passion and your excitement about it and you just go in another direction with it. And, you know, it's, it's, it's something where you can have a plan, but you, the plan I think is it, it depending, you know, it's different for every person. For me, the plan was ultimately to just follow the passion and then hope 
that everything else fell into place and I don't recommend it. But I do think that it is important to have the plan, but know that the plan is going to be really flexible and things are going to happen and it's going to be exciting. And there's going to be days where you write a completely different plan. Right. So, uh, but yeah, no, I think it is important. Um, I, I would have to say that I, I ended up here somehow, but it wasn't, you know, my five-year plans never really came together, <laughs> but it's, but I've had a lot of fun along the way. Yeah. I was going to say, um, this quote, I think that's attributed to Eisenhower, which is that plans are worthless, but planning is everything. Meaning that, which to me, I, I think that exactly that's what perfect. they're saying. You know, I like that. Yeah, you, you, you want to make the plans. Like you want to think ahead. You know, you don't, you don't want to be stuck. I feel like one of the pitfalls, for example, is if, you know, you overcommit to one project and you find yourself where that project reached a dead end and you have nothing else to show. So you, got, you, have, to, you have to plan and you have to think, you know, what's going to be the pap- this paper, the next paper, what's, what kind of training do I need to do to get to this point? But yeah, it's the field changes constantly. You know, I go to the American Society of Genetics or American Thoracic Society meeting and you get new ideas and you want to change. So you, you want to plan, just don't expect it to actually work out the way you plan. The best five-year plan is the five-year plan you write on your R01 when it gets funded for five years. That's the best five-year plan. Um, I, otherwise I, you know, it's, I don't, you know, it's, it's, I, I, well, both of y'all say it makes a lot of sense and it, it makes a lot of sense to me. I, I've never thought of my career in terms of the five-year plan. I mean, you know, it, it was just all about, you know, uh, we're doing different things and it's about what is that plan for, what, what is the plan for each of these individual things that we're doing, knowing that what we're doing later will change and the makeup of what our work is will be different. And the tech, in five years, the technologies we'll use will be so different, I mean, as well, and what we use. So, you know, I think I, I always have a, I mean, in my career, I've always just had a general idea of where I want to go to next. I usually have like, you know, like, like you know, like I, in, two, in 2010, I decided to get my PhD and it took me six years to get that PhD. And, I, and I'll tell you, I think it's important for people to know, I, I, I don't think a PhD is necessary to be successful in what you do here if you're an MD. I mean, it, it's not, but, but in my case, I was what we call a late bloomer. I was a late bloomer. So, you know, it helped me kind of catch up, but I, I didn't think it would take me six years. Um, but I, but, but because I didn't have a five-year plan, I was never disappointed. I was just thrilled to get my PhD at the end. Um, I think it's important to know what you're doing and where it's going and what your goals are. I think it's good to be, I'm goal oriented. I run from one goal to the next. I run to goals. I just feel like, and, and, and this preceded my time in this, in this work, I felt like if I set an expectation for a timeline, I would, if I didn't meet it, I'd be very disappointed. It's my personality. I'm actually one of those personalities where I, I, I think big, I tend to think bigger than I probably should. And if, if somebody who thinks like that restricts themselves to certain time points, you know, you, you can easily find yourself disappointed or frustrated. And I, I just, I, I tend to be a positive energy person and try to be positive and, and the plan is good, but I think having goals is knowing what your goals are and knowing yourself is, is the best, I think. Exactly. And one of the things I think is particularly in computational genomics is it can get fun (laughs) and having the goals and the plans 
can kind of stop you from straying too far about what you could do. And it's, it's, there's just so many questions. So the more you dig into genomics and the more you look into what you're doing, if you don't have a plan or a direction, you can get caught up in these crossword puzzles and, oh, that's fun to analyze this data and analyze this. And this is really cool. And I can plot it like that, but having the goal and going back and say, well, wait, but why? Why am I doing, is this just busy work? Is it a crossword puzzle? What is the hypothesis? What is the meaning? You know, in terms of a project related five-year plan and goals, very essential um, in order to really kind of, to keep the course of what you're doing. Not to say that you shouldn't also do exploratory and follow up on new things that you discovered because a lot of the greatest discoveries in science have been an accident. So that, that's very important. In terms of the career, again, it is actually pretty important to try to think forward, particularly you know, now when, when you go through rough times or pandemics, it's, it's easy to kind of get unmotivated or um, you know, working in isolation. And, but if you can kind of even just put it up on your wall and think, okay, this is actually where I wanna be in five years. And these are kinds of the steps. It can be really motivated to get you back on track to where you want to go, but flexibility is key, right? You can get caught up and say, okay, in five years, this is what I want to do. And then maybe, maybe you spend the next five years trying to do that. And then you get there and you realize, oh, I actually didn't want to be here. <laughs> so, you know, flexibility is key and planning is key, but be, you know, know that things are, are going to potentially change. And that's a good thing. Yeah. I think that, that that's important, right? I think in, in the world that we live in and the work that we do, there are tenure clocks and there are grants that have expiration. So you have to have an idea of where things lie in terms of your goals and how they relate to the different time structures that are around you. So no, that makes a lot of sense. So if, if you could go back in time to and say one thing to you as you began your fellowship or a postdoctoral fellowship, you know, in regards to your career as a genomic scientist, what would you say? I guess I would probably tell myself that I belonged here that, you know, even though you might feel like you can't do as much as the other person, <laughs> it's, it's that person is also feeling that they probably can't do as much. Everybody's situation is a little bit different, but, you know, for me, it was really about the confidence and, you know, I don't have formal training in programming, but I love it and I'm self-taught and I've, really had a passion about it, but I always kind of felt like, okay, well, but am I a real programmer? And, uh, you know, now I realize that, no, I am, and that's my passion and I belong here. And for everybody else, it's gonna be a different, but that's what I would probably go back and tell myself. No, you do belong just as much as everybody else, even though your background is different and your skill set is different coming in. Yeah, that's very similar to what I would tell myself, you know, I. Every step of the way, maybe I suffered from the imposter syndrome more than maybe my colleagues next to me. I just like, man, am I really supposed to be here doing this? You know, I, I really didn't think about research until I got into fellowship and, you know, in, my, in every step of the way, but I would just keep working, be dedicated. So if I had one thing I would do, I'd probably go back and say, all that work and all that sacrifice you're doing will pay off. Just keep doing it. Because, you know, long nights, you know, tough days, you know, it will pay off. Just keep doing it. Don't, don't, yeah, you're doing the right thing. Stay dedicated. You may not be motivated every day. You may get tired, but never, like what Winston Churchill said it, right? 
never, never, never quit. Right. And that's what I would tell myself. It'll be worth it. Cause right now I'm having the best time of my life. I don't even know how many vacation days I have left. And I don't even count those. I love what I do. Um, and it was all worth it looking back. I still, I still have imposter syndrome a lot because I actually, like I said, I go back to my genetics courses and I'm like, am I really supposed to be doing human genetics work? I would, now when I was thinking about this question, I was just thinking about all of the, you know, Dara was talking about the rabbit holes and how you sort of get excited about analyzing pieces of data. And then you take a step back and you're like, why, why am I doing this? I think I spent a lot of time as a fellow going down rabbit holes and spending time on things that probably were not that productive. And I guess the easy thing would be just say, well, if I could predict the future and I knew which projects would have worked and which projects didn't work, that would have been awesome. And so, yeah, if, you know, in the beginning of my fellowship, I could have just said, here are the, here's the, you know, here's the one thing that's going to work and here are the three things that are not going to work. That would have been great. But at the same time, you sort of have to figure that out. That's a constant part of science, right? And I guess the biggest lesson that I, I learned from that is that the primary thing that I was supposed to do in, in my T32 and K08 time actually didn't really pan out, but the other stuff I was doing did. And so, yeah, got lucky. Well, it's important, you know, again, when things don't work out, it's communicating that so that other people, you know, I think that what we've seen with a nice about the, you know, the online journals and free access and the publishing of negative results, it's still, you know, important to write it down and tell people, but uh, Michael, you definitely belong here. <laughs> you do. You do. You know, I one of the things I didn't well, thank see you. I will, I will say you guys have PhDs and I don't. So I definitely feel have that inferiority complex. And I thought about <laughs> trying it. to get yeah. one and, and ha have not. Um, I get, you know, Victor, you belong to, we all belong here. And you know, I think some of the best groups I've been part of has said, you know what, if someone comes in and they're, they're, you know, taking out the trash and they have an idea, they get the platform. And, you know, yeah. I, I was good. when I, when I got my PhD, my advisor, Rama Singh said, okay, well now you have your club card, but it doesn't mean that you're, you know, it's not like, it's kind of like right. an unwritten pass and it's, but it's, right. it's really, you know, there are many ways of, of training and, and being in places. And, you know, I don't, I don't have an MD. Um, so, I, you know, again, it's, uh, you know, we're all bringing different things to the table, but, um, I think it's safe to say that, um, you know, everybody, everybody can belong and we should make everybody feel welcome. Yeah. The, the one thing I didn't know, looking back that I would have also said is how much fun it would be as you go through the years, the more, the more dedicated you are, the more work you do, the more people you get the chance to meet. And it's just, I think we all belong and we all belong because we're doing it together. And I think that one of, one of the reasons why this job is so fun is that I get to network and, and that I get to work with folks like you guys, you know, it's just, it's just, that's probably one of the most fun things when you write a grant and everybody's helping each other out and everybody's giving ideas to the other person and you're always supporting each other. I mean, I think when that's happening, when you have that dynamic of support and, and everybody's enthusiastic and supportive of each other, this job becomes a job where you're not counting your vacation days, you're, you're enjoying it. Yeah. I was going to make the point too, you know, Vic, I, th I think we have the best people, right? I mean, you guys are great. Like I, I can say that the people that I've met and in, um, in respiratory genetics and genomics are like the best people. I, I don't know. That's, that's what I think. 
we're, we're absolutely blessed with the people we have around us that are doing this. I mean, it's, you know, maybe it's a random chance, but I think a lot of us, you know, are driven and enthusiastic and, and, and have our goals in respiratory medicine. And we all kind of see that in each other and, and, and we help each other on, the, you know, it just, it's, yeah, the collaborations have made this so much fun. So I think that's the one thing I didn't know going in it when you're kind of on, yeah, I still remember sitting 15 years ago, sitting in a cubicle by myself, feeling very by myself, reading about the 16 Gly arginine variant, um, you know, the Gly 16 arginine variant, the beta two gene and like, oh my God, and I'm by myself. But as every year went on, the network grew, the people around you grow. And now with TopMed and Kappa and, and, you know, all the things we're doing, these things are huge. And we have all these meetings that we have that are just a lot of fun. So this is a ATS podcast. So what has ATS, how has, what role has ATS played in your career growth and development? Yeah, I'll say ATS has been critical to my career growth and development. I mean, I've, I made it a goal to, to have some form of an abstract or something to present at ATS every year since I started at Wake Forest in 2006. And I've done that. And I think, and it, it, it's, it's, it's how I felt like I could contribute to the society and go to the meeting. Everybody will have their own way of contributing to the society and going to the meeting. And every year that I did it, you know, I got more and more involved. And now, you know, I think, you know, I'm more heavily involved now as, as a, as a co-chair and then chair of the section on genetics and genomics. And this was really the way that I got to meet different people is going to these different meetings. I think I met Dara for the first time at, um, in an ATS meeting. And I met Mike Cho, I think, for the first time in person at an ASHG meeting. Um, and this is how you grow your network and you meet in person. I think we're, you know, you know Zoom has been kind of, that's the, one, the one Debbie Downer of the Zoom our Zoom era with COVID-19 is that we haven't been able to get back together. Um, and, and, I, and I can't wait for us to all get back together in person. But I think as a society, we all do our part together. And I remember being a face in the crowd and I think we're all faces in the crowd. And um, I think that if we do our part, ATS gives a lot back um, in terms of facilitating your career growth and development by, by initially you being somebody who is a user of the material, but if you go and you're focused and you, you, you participate in ATS, eventually you're part of what is delivering the material. And I think that, that that's a great thing for, for, for the society and respiratory medicine in general. It's been huge for me, you know, as a PhD without a clinical background, it's, and you know, clinicians are busy. And so it's really given me more opportunity to reach out and talk with more diverse scientists. So uh, uh, get exposed to the biological and the clinical side. And that's so important. You know, you can sit down and look at a bunch of ATGCs all day, but you're really not going to get, particularly in respiratory diseases, because these lungs, you know, we're, we're absorbing the environment. There's genes involved, there's environment, you know, there's, there's physiological processes. And so you really do need to understand to have an appreciation of what you're doing in genomics and why. I remember at one point, um, so I had, I had gone to human genetics meetings and I, you know, I, I hadn't really heard of the ATS and going to my first ATS meeting. And I think I got in the wrong session and, (laughs) 
you know, so I, I sat there and all of a sudden it was all about uh, lung transplants and there were these pictures going up and I was just like, oh my goodness, what is going on here? And, you know, I stayed and I missed the, I missed the genetic session I had intended to go to. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. And I learned so much more about different fields and it's a huge society and, you know, finding, finding a genomics community within there and also learning to, to interact with more uh, basic scientists as well as clinical science has, has been really, really important for my growth and getting to know people as well. Um, so I think that it's been really important in my career. And, you know, I'm not sure I would have found a community and continued as much in, in respiratory uh, diseases as I, as I have been, which is now 100% of my focus. Echo the, some of the same things that Vic and, and Dara say that this has been incredibly important. I think for me, I've never really thought of myself as somebody who either likes or is good at networking, but you do it. You just meet people and you share common interests and you see great research. And like I said, I think, especially in respiratory genetics and genomics, we have a really fantastic group. And I go to the Society of uh, American Society of Human Genetics meeting, which is a, a great meeting for genetics, but there's no core of respiratory people there the way that there is at, uh, at ATS. And I think that's why one of the reasons why ATS serves such an important role. So at, at what point in your career did you realize that you've achieved a major milestone in genomics research? Uh, that, whew, I made it moment. Or are you still waiting for that moment? The moment exists, you're the top of the mountain. I don't know. I've never been, I have not been on the top. I have not reached the top of the mountain. That's for darn sure. Gosh, that, that's a, that's a, that's a good one that I feel like I've made it. I think it was, um, I took a deep breath when I got the first R01 funded. I, I took a deep breath um, at that point, but I've taken deep breaths in different points in my career also that not as maybe as deep a breath, you know, and you know, getting a PhD was a lot of work and I was happy when that happened. I felt like I kind of, Oh, that I kind of, did it. I, I did it. I understand the, the path of a PhD scientist now. I kind of get it. I think my first, I think another one that's important, I think it's the R01, but the other one that was a big one for me where I feel like I achieved something important is when I published my first original research manuscript. And it's hilarious because it's actually the article that's right, right before Michael Cho's, one of Michael, the Michael Cho's big COPD GWAS in the Lancet Respiratory. But it was, we were more in the same issue. And I remember looking at, who's that Cho M guy? <laughs> I remember publication, looking. Publication Brothers. For... That's right. But, you know, it's, it's you know, and I think people like us just keep going and going and going. And we, we, we look back and we celebrate our achievements. And in terms of you made it, I mean, I think it's, um, you know, you celebrate your, your successes, but you look forward to, to more. And you kind of have to. I mean, it's. You know, I, I, you know, you take a deep breath, you did it, but there's more to be done. The technology's changing, the questions get bigger and people like us, you answer a question, but then it opens up more questions. I mean, all of our, I, I, and I've heard this said by several people and it rings true to me, you can spend your whole life chasing uh, a question, but the way I see it more is the initial question you ask drives more questions and you keep going and going. And it's that curiosity that drives you. And I think I, that's why I do, if I didn't have that curiosity, I don't know if I'd still be doing this 15 years out. Yeah, I agree, Victor. I think that it's, you know, if I ever got to the point where I feel like, okay, I've made it. It's like, well, that just means I, I probably just gave up <laughs> because, 
you know, there, you, I think you have to, you have to be balanced because otherwise it's just on this race, your whole career of, oh, I have to do this. Oh, now I have to do this. Oh, now I have to do this. And if you've got to that point where you're like, okay, now I don't have anything else to do. It's like, well, what, you know, what it's, there's always more growth. There's always more to do. If you, if you try to set the bar of saying, okay, I'm only going to be successful in science when I reach this point, you underappreciate the other small successes that you have, you know, in thinking about those small successes, my, and coming from, you know, outside of the United States, when I first published uh, as a graduate student in sort of a, an international journal, I kind of felt like, okay, and, and I was a, a graduate student and not sure if that was, you know, the route that I was going to go. I actually, when I finished my undergraduate, I, I worked with parrots and I worked in the zoo and did educational programs and, you know, science wasn't necessarily on my radar. And so I didn't have that traditional path. And when I got my first paper kind of accepted in an international journal, it was kind of this like, wow, somebody actually wants me to be here <laughs> or somebody likes what I did. And, you know, and that was kind of a small, a small sort of push to say, okay, this is, this is probably going to be your career. And, you know, I think that it is really important to celebrate those small things that you do because, it can be a thankless <laughs> journey of rejections and everybody has them. And I think that, that, that it's the small, okay, I got to this point, right? That, that we can all celebrate. To what Dara had said before, I remember, I mean, I wrote a paper during fellowship that, that felt as much my, my mentor at the time as mine. And that I remember the first time I had to publish my first research paper in genetics was actually a negative paper. And I remember struggling so much, like, how do I write this? How do I turn this into something worth saying? And I think it goes to what Dara was saying before, like you can't, you know, you may go down these dead ends and not find what you think, but it's still important to get it out there. And what I realized, I think this is like many, many papers having to be you know, constantly convinced that I should publish this, that you can often take something that doesn't seem that great. And if you actually try to turn it into a paper, you can actually make it worth a journal, you know, publishing and something that you can, you know, you can stand behind. And for me, I think that was a, an important milestone for me that I got my first genetics paper published. It was a negative paper, but I remember when somebody actually said, oh, look, I saw your paper. I thought it was really interesting. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> somebody actually cares about what I'm doing. So that was really important for me. And then I think as you go and you, you build papers and you contribute to the, to the literature and you feel that your contributions are actually being read or somebody mentions a paper to you or you reach out to somebody and they agree to collaborate because they know that you can do something. Um, I think those are, about, those are all important milestones. And like Vic has said this, right? It, it does get sort of better and it does get more fun. Um, you know, you should just sort of keep building. And if you do get to the point where you're like, I made it. Yeah, <laughs> something's not something's not quite right because it's the journey, I think, that we're all interested. That isn't to say if you get a grant or you get a big paper, you should congratulate yourselves and give a nice give yourself a nice pat on the back. But um, yeah. yeah, 
And it, that feeling of a deep breath is, I think, you know, not necessarily that I made it, but what I'm doing is is start is starting to matter. It matters. People are looking at. It. I'm, I'm making I'm making a difference. I, you know that you know, that you know that's the closest thing that I'll have to when I made it, unless I win the lottery or something. So for those um, uh, listening and considering a current genetics, I'm curious what are some of the sentinel breakthroughs of genetic disease, particularly in pulmonary disease, that you all found to be uh, inspiring or maybe attracted you uh, into this field? Yeah, I was always trained as a clinician first. I was raised in a household with a pulmonary physician. So that, you know, I think the sentinel breakthroughs, when I think of it, are things that I think that have made a difference in how we take care of patients. And I had a really good friend in high school who died of cystic fibrosis. I'll never forget that. That's something that just, it gets etched in your brain for life. Um, and here at Wake Forest, I actually, because of my interest in pharmacogenetics, and I saw the breakthroughs that were going on in terms of discovery and drug development, I actually went ahead and and uh, I volunteered to be the director of the CF program here at Wake. We had a small program. Um, and I also you know, went on and, and, and got funding to be a therapeutics development network side. And we got into clinical trials and I really did all this because I was seeing this incredible development of drugs coming up for cystic fibrosis. And we were very fortunate. And that actually wasn't, I made it moment when we got the, in terms of clinical trials, where we got the, probably one of the more competitive vertex studies on trikafta like drug, um, one of these newer um, CFTR modulators and and, to, and, you know, I think the biggest breakthrough, and I'm glad I became involved in that pharmacogenetics research, having a background in genetics research and pharmacogenetics really helped, helped us in terms of being able to enroll patients and become a really attractive site from a site that really wasn't doing any clinical trials in cystic fibrosis. But now, you know, looking past the clinical trials and just being a CF doctor, it is a lot different being a cystic fibrosis doctor today than it was two years ago. And some of this may be from social distancing from COVID-19, I acknowledge that, but Trikafta, these newer drugs are making a remarkable difference in these, in these people's lives. I mean, these people, you know, it's, you know, it's crazy what pharmacogenetics and then, and these small molecule discovery technologies have done. And we've changed the natural trajectory of a disease that was once devastating and fatal and at birth or, or at near birth, you know, in, in one or two years. Now we're looking at a potential lifetime um, for these individuals. And so, yeah, I find that really inspiring. And it really shows that by learning genetics and understanding genetics and genomics, that cystic fibrosis is an example of a really high bar for what you can do. I would echo Vic's comment and remember that cystic fibrosis is sort of the poster child now for, for genetic diseases that we basically um, and many people can, can essentially cure. And that is, a, that is incredible. I think the other things I think for me that have really been milestones in genetics, I think I'm an unabashed supporter of GWASs. I think they have actually done amazing things and uh, found a lot of new novel biology that you know, people can spend entire R01s investigating GWAS loci in, in a way that I think will teach us a lot about the pathogenesis of disease and other people have actually shown that there's, you can enrich for successful drug targets by looking at GWAS loci. So I think that the sort of extent to which GWASs have uncovered risk loci and found new targets shown overlap with other diseases also uh, found new signals for pleiotropy, where the signal sort of a, is a risk factor for two different diseases like COPD and pulmonary fibrosis or 
COPD and asthma, I think are, are really great. I think another thing that I would say is um, our ability to do whole genome sequencing and discover rare variants for rare lung diseases is also tremendously expanded. I think we can we can do diagnosis of Mendelian disease, I think, in a way that would not have been anticipated 10 years ago just because of the way sequencing has progressed. And another thing that I'll say that Dara and probably Vic can speak more to is that the recognition of the need to do studies in um, diverse populations has a huge scientific rationale in genetics. And it just, I think, emphasizes how we need to move away from European-centric studies. Um, A lot of that is from the study of complex disease and genetics. And the last thing I guess I will say is integrative omics studies. So again, one of the first integrative omics EQTL studies was actually ORMDL3 and asthma. So the ability to integrate all kinds of other um, transcriptomics and proteomics and all that kind of data, I think is another another big breakthrough. Yeah, I think that in general, genomic studies have also really made us realize how much heterogeneity there is and how much complexity there is. So it's not just complex disease, it's even more complex than we, than we thought. So thinking about GWAS, you know, with the hope or thinking that there might be a set of a gene or five genes that are involved in a trait it has really revealed that no, particularly with complex respiratory diseases, that is not the expectation that we should go into. And that there, there are many subphenotypes of a disease that really have different genetic architectures than we might expect, whether it being the number of genes or rare versus common. And I think that that's very valuable information. Also that really, even a Mendelian disease, there are so many different modifiers and so many different factors, genetic and non-genetic, that um, go into the actual clinical manifestations and outcomes that we see. The, the, actually, you know, just thinking about what, um, what Darren and Mike are saying, the biggest breakthroughs may not be the dis- may not be discovery, but the realizations that came just looking back at when the, 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 the human genome was first mapped and all the optimism of having that data. And now we have whole genome sequencing data or, and we have you know whole genome data in other forms like chip array with imputation for so many people. And we're doing these huge studies on hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people for like a trait like lung function. And we're making discoveries of over 270 different variants of which only account for like 10% of the heritability of lung function. So the realization that this is way more complicated than we thought it would be. I mean, it's going to give us, I mean, one of the things about if you want to go into genomics research, I mean, you're going to have a job. I mean, there that missing heritability issue will give you a job. It'll, there'll be jobs forever in omics probably because we're not going to have all the answers and, and we're going to develop more and more technologies and multi-omics to address the issue of missing heritability. The other big realization is that this has been, these technologies have been applied mostly in people of European descent, whites. And that the fact of the matter is that the true diversity of the genome, we have yet, we're starting to understand that as we've recruited more and more diverse populations, but we really have to catch up with understanding the diversity of of the whole genome by getting more diverse folks. I mean, less than, what is it? You guys can quote it better than I probably could. Less than 5%, maybe 3% of genetic studies or less have been done on African descent individuals. I mean, the vast majority of genetic studies have been done in European whites, who are the minority of people in the world. 
So we have a long ways to go there. So that, that's another major realization that we're having is the importance of diversity and inclusion in genome, genomic studies. That's really interesting. And I, I think building on that a little bit, what do you view as the current role for genetic analysis in clinical care of patients? And how do you envision that going uh, as this field continues to grow and develop? I think genomic scientists, we've learned that we have to be very accountable for the use of that information. So, you know, you can, um, certainly when you're writing your paper or whatnot, you know, there's always sort of the, well, this is, this is the context of my findings. And, you know, it's not just publishing your results in a journal and going home. There's a need for accountability. So for, for following up with uh, communicating to um, via social media through the conventional media and you know, reaching out and really being, I think, accountable for what we're finding in genomics, because there is this very, very slippery slope of how that information is getting used. And, you know, part of genomic training should really be on the ethical considerations and the social considerations of the work that we're doing. So I, you know, I do really see that that is an important role so it's not just about learning the, the tools um, or the reasons or developing hypotheses, but also following up on how that information is being presented and how it's being used. I totally agree with Dara. You know, I think that if you go back to you know, 15, 20 years ago, aside from the known Mendelian disease genes that everyone sort of knew that were part of screening, there wasn't really much we could offer that was directly relevant to a patient. And now I think with the advent of these genome-wide polygenic risk scores, which uh, some of which I think have either come close to or uh, are actually entering, entering clinical use, the increased discovery of uh, rare causal variants. I think that the, the proximity to these things being used is both exciting, but also of concern. I think there was recently, there's recently a company that's actually doing some kind of prenatal screening based on polygenic risk scores. And I think, I don't think any of us would advocate that at this point. So it's getting closer, but I think as it becomes closer, we really need to pay more attention to the ELSI issues. Um, and they, they are, I think as Dara said, a really important part. So very exciting, getting closer, uh, but also need to be very careful. Yeah, no, we have we have a tremendous challenge in the horizon. And I think it's, you know, as genomic scientists, you know, as you get into this field, as you work in this field, and, and when we analyze and report and, and convey results to each other, we do it with a tremendous amount of respect and responsibility. Understanding that genetic variation is inherent to who we are and, you know, and I think as, as, as we collect more and more data on genetic profiles and risk variants and, you know, we have to be very, um, we have to be responsible and we have to be advocates for, 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 for the most ethical treatment of that kind of very private um, data when it comes to care, insurance, society, you know, in general. So I, I think that as, as the costs of whole genomes data, acquisition of whole genome level data starts to drop the ability to get genetic data is going to be more wide, way more right, widespread. And I, you know, we all know this is going to happen. 
It's going to happen during the course of our probably going to, it's definitely going to happen during the course of our lifetimes. So we have to be ready for this. But I do think there's a huge promise in, 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 um, in genomics. And I think cystic fibrosis is one example, but so is cancer. Um, I think when you have a lung and we, we you know, the, you know the, the issue of being able to take a tissue from somebody who has cancer, you can get transcriptomics on it and gen, you know, genomics, transcriptomics, and you can understand the drivers of a particular cancer and you can develop targeted therapies that deal with these different drivers that are unique to the individual patient's cancer or even the transition of a cancer in the same person over time. I think that's going to grow and grow through the years and we're going to be able to really you know, deal with cancer in a very strong way in the not too distant future. I mean, there is the promise that it holds, but there's the great responsibility of dealing with the fact that much larger proportions of the population will have this genetic data at, at one point or another. And I would say one last thing that's probably specific a little bit to COPD, but other diseases that I think as we've increasingly recognized the genetic contribution of disease, I think there are still people out there, for example, who don't believe that aside from alpha one, there really is a significant genetic contribution to COPD. You know, I would argue that there is, and I, I do think from my clinical experience and those of others, this notion that you know the disease is all caused by you because you're smoking leads to this cycle of like guilt and self-blame and things like that. And I think Dara alluded to the complexity that we're discovering in all diseases and COPD is part of that. So it turns out that some people have, you know, very high, for example, polygenic risk, even if they don't have alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. And so I think it helps in the sense that when you see somebody, for example, with COPD in front of you, you really should think, even if they don't have alpha-1, that there, there are likely genetic factors that have contributed to this person's disease. And if that helps them heal and treat their disease better and you manage the disease better, then I think that that's also another important lesson. And that's a critical, and that, that kind of gets at the issue of the missing heritability as well, I think, where there's genomic factors that we don't account for and, and, and environmental exposures. And I think, you know, when you're dealing with the missing heritability, you know, is it variants, rare variants that we haven't found because we're, we never, you know, we haven't looked at, at that, that level of detail because GWAS can't do that. Is it epigenetic modification or several layers within epigenetics, methylation, you know, histone modifications, et cetera. Is it transcriptomic variation? You know, you can just go down metabolomic, proteomic variation. I mean, you know, there's so many layers. And then on top of that, there's like the interaction with the environment, not just cigarette smoke, but you know, you guys know well that pollution interacts with cigarette smoke and may make COPD more severe. There's so many issues in gene by environment interactions. And there's also a gene doesn't operate in an island, right? They don't, a gene doesn't operate in an island. Multiple genes work together in networks or biologic pathways. And I think, I mean, looking, you know, you know, looking at where we are now, I feel like we've done a tremendous amount, but there, there's, there's, like I said, you're gonna, there's, there's a long, there's a long way to go. And if you want to get into genomics, there'll probably be a place for you. There's a lot, there's a lot of questions still out there and a lot of work that has to be done still. I see a lot of promise, not necessarily also in the, you know, the, 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 the diagnosis and propensity of the disease, but also in, you know, the way we know that people respond very differently to therapeutic interventions. And, you know, particularly in the case of particular drugs, we can therefore, you know, I'm quite optimistic that genetics will actually be in, in some cases quite informative to that. And there are a number of examples already where, 
you know, if we think about a drug and it's targeting a particular pathway, well, if there's a, a genetic variant um, or a set of variants that is altering the metabolism or their delivery or the effectiveness that, that maybe, you know, these are, these are things that, well, we can learn at the population level, it may provide us some information of how to treat an individual person, right? Because everything that we're learning in genomics is for the most part at the population level. And then, you know, we have to take that information and say, okay, well, what does this mean for an individual? Because everybody's genome is essentially their background, apart from, of course, uh, you know, a number of, of somatic mutations, you're born with your genome. And then you have all of these experiences and you're, they, they all accumulate. And so I really do think of it as, as kind of a background, but we can, you know, the hope is that we can think about that background and that sort of ability to process things like interventions and drug metabolism and, you know, quantitative measures of the underlying physiology and see, well, at which point is that kind of the, the tipping point? So, you know, I'm hopeful in some regards for not just genomics being important for discovering new uh, physiology, but also potentially as, as somewhat of a, a guidance or a baseline for thinking about what types of clinical interventions may or may not be effective for a person as a, an individual patient. But again, it is really important for us to think about how are we communicating that? Are we misinterpreting the utility of some of these genetic findings? So as we come to um, the end of our, our podcast, we have one last question. Do, you, do all of you ever sleep or take a vacation? Uh, but seriously, uh, what do you do in your pastime when you're not crunching numbers or uh, writing the next grant or paper? Darren, Mike, Joe, know where I am when, I, when I'm out in my office. I'm in Disney World. Disney World. <laughs> <laughs> you're Disney. <laughs> I, am, I am a shameless Disney dad. I mean, I love spending time with my nine-year-old daughter, Zoe, and my wife, Heather, who, you know, they've, without their support, I wouldn't be here where I am either. And that, that, that's a very important thing to note is that your family support and your friends support is very important in whatever you, you do in your career. But yeah, I mean, my, 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 my concept has always been you work hard, you play hard. Um, so when we, when we do the little, the few weeks a year, we take vacation, we go to Disney world. I, I do the vacation club thing. I mean, the shameless Disney dad. Yeah. If I don't get enough sleep, I find it will take me five hours to do something that I could do in 20 minutes. And so I see sleep as bought time. Um, also, if I haven't slept, I find that I, I might make mistakes that might lead to months of of going the wrong direction. So I think it is really important to stay balanced. And, you know, I, I people need different amounts of sleep. And, and you know, I, I think that, you know, I, I have two young kids at home and, you know, I've learned in many ways to be more effective on less sleep, but I make really poor decisions when I don't take time off, when I don't go on vacations. I am guilty of often, you know, calling conferences vacations and I realize no, that's not, you know, it's, it's great, you know, many times you get to travel different places, but, but, you know, I, I actually, I think as scientists, we do get to travel around and, and I've always kind of thought of it as a lifestyle, but I do know that I need balance and I need to do some of these other things because some days science really really is terrible and things aren't working. And if you don't have something else, then it can, you know, it, sometimes it can be, it can be a, a very thankless, stressful time. So it's, you know, pick up a hobby and, and give yourself some time, take care of yourself, get some sleep because you will do better work 
that being said, I'm sure there are many people that 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 isn't helpful. So it's really important to find your own your own way. But if I don't have sleep, I I'm I'm a bit of a disaster, I must say. So I try I try to get some. <laughs> I used to be the person who thought they could get away with no sleep, and this sort of served me well during my clinical years. And then when I got to my research time, um, you know, I realized that I could stay awake for a dying patient, but I couldn't stay awake to do a another data analysis. And so I sleep plenty now, um, which I have to keep telling my parents that I actually do because they don't believe me. I, I will give a plug for the research, the kind of research that we do in that we have a lot of flexibility. And so we don't have cells that we need to run back into the lab to take care of. Uh, you know, we don't have these, we don't have timed experiments in quite the same way and we can work remotely a lot. And that gives us, I think, of a lot of flexibility. And I think for a lifestyle, that's really good. So in terms of being able to sleep uh, when you should be sleeping and being able to take vacation or being able to take a, you know, an afternoon and um, go see your kids recital, I, I think that's all something that's really important and that uh, we should all be doing. I, I have three kids, so that, that's what I do when I'm, not, when I'm not crunching numbers or I'm writing. Um, and I also, I have a hobby, so I, I play music. So I play in a, a local symphony and also uh, do chamber music. And so that release, release has been essential. We all talk about how fun it is to do research, but I do remember, and I'm sure we all remember, you know, when you do something for a month and you realize that you coded something wrong in the bidding, beginning of your file and you've just lost, you know, like a month of your life. Um, and uh, so sometimes when those kinds of things happen, you need something else to turn to. Well, on behalf of ATS and the section of genetics and genomics, we would like to thank our panelists today for sharing their experiences building a research career in respiratory genomics. We hope everyone listening has been able to gain some insight into how their experiences could help guide your own journey in human genetics research.